well, have you ever uh, recruited someone uh, to some type of an undertaking? Uh, it really could be, you know, anything. They, they agreed to it, and then once it started, they quickly lost interest, and they bailed out on you. Has anybody ever had that kind uh, of an experience? I see a few of you. Uh, a lot of you evidently have just wonderful friends, because I only see a few hands. Uh, so good for you. Uh, or maybe this is the better way to say it. Have you ever been the person invited to do something, a project, a trip, a, a social function? You accepted, and then early into whatever it was, you lost interest, and you bailed out on it. Any of you want to admit to having ever done that? Well, we just have amazing people in here today. So. Well, uh, several years ago, I... Uh, went on a trip with some guys from the church here to Chicago uh, to watch the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Northwestern Wildcats play football uh, in Evanston there, just north of Chicago. Uh, someone had put the trip together. They invited me, and so we drove to Chicago the night before the game. Uh, the weather was uncharacteristically warm. I believe it was in November. Uh, we had a great time. We ate good food. We went to a venue and listened to some blues music stayed in a nice hotel. It was just a, it was, you know, starting out as a fantastic time. But the next morning we woke up to get ready to go to the game and let's just say it was not uncharacteristically warm anymore. Uh, but because it had been the day before, I had not paid much attention to the coat that I took with me. And all I had was a leather jacket that was unlined with a broken zipper. Uh, so it could not be zipped up. No matter, we were there to see the Buckeyes, and nothing would stop me from seeing the Buckeyes. I was excited. I wanted to get going. We went to the game. The game started, and throughout the game, the weather worsened, and the snow began to fall, and the temperature dropped to, I think it was the low 20s, maybe even the high teens, and of course, we're essentially right on the lake, and so the wind is whipping off of the lake, so making it feel like the coldest day I've ever felt in my life. And I have a leather unlined jacket on while the rest of my better prepared friends have nice warm coats that are zipped up and big thick hats on their heads. I became so miserable that the only thing that I wanted to happen was for this experience to be over. I no longer cared if the Buckeyes won or lost. I did not care that we were watching a good football game. I just wanted it to be over. I am a person who watches Ohio State when they play the worst team they could possibly play, I stay glued to the TV even when they're up by 70. And on this particular day, if I had been alone, I would have left before halftime. I wanted others to leave. I kept floating little hints like, boy, you know, is this really worth it out here? <laughs> and everybody thought it was. So we, we stayed and we stuck it out. But everything in me, the point is, everything in me wanted to quit this adventure and go back home. This brutal weather caused me to lose heart and to no longer have interest in the adventure. 
And maybe you've had a similar experience at some point in your life. The recipients of this book or letter uh, of Hebrews had been told about Jesus. They had found the proclamation of his life, death, and resurrection to be so compelling that they had signed up to follow him. They said, I'm in. I'm in with Jesus. But after signing up with Jesus, things did not go quite like they wanted them to go. They faced pressures that they had never faced before. Society did not view them as favorably as what they once were viewed, and in fact, they came to be at risk of real persecution. Family members pressured them to turn away from their newfound faith in Christ and to turn back to the law and the tradition of their fathers. Pressure came to these new believers, and they wanted to bail out, or at least they were being tempted to bail out. And of course, this story has played out with God's people throughout history. Hebrews is written to people who were being tempted or actually were bailing out on the adventure they had begun with God. And the 95th Psalm, which is quoted in Hebrews 3, which we're going to read here in just a minute, is written about people who drifted away and turned away from God when trouble came in the middle of their God-given, their God-led adventure. And so if you're here today and you know you've been drifting from faith, you've been drifting from Christ, or maybe you have been facing the temptation to actually turn away, to give up, and to walk away, the book of Hebrews is for you. It was written to people just like you, facing the same kind of temptation that you are facing. We're continuing our series, It's All About Jesus, and today we're looking at Hebrews 3, uh, 7 through 19. As we look at the text here in just a minute, I want to remind you of the context of what's going on here. The author of Hebrews, I know I've been repetitive about this, but, but it's just important for us to know this. The author of Hebrews is writing to primarily Jewish Christians who have been tempted to turn away from faith in Christ, turn back to the law and traditions of their fathers. Many are facing significant pressure from family and friends, and that pressure is resulting in them being at real risk of turning away from Jesus. The text that we ended with last week, we ended at chapter 3 and verse 6, let us know that God is building a house, he's building a community of people, and verse 6, which directly precedes what we're going to read today, said this, we are his house, we are the people God is building, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Another translation has it this way, we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And so the author was letting uh, them know that those who belong to God are the ones who hold on to their confidence about Christ who stand firm in their commitment to Christ, even when it requires courage to stand in the face of trouble, even when it requires standing against and facing pressure and opposition. And now as we move into verse 7 and the rest of chapter 3, the author references the 95th Psalm and provides a warning to the readers of Hebrews from Israel's history. 
And so that's what we're going to be reading uh, here now. It's Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Note that verses 7 through 11, you probably won't be able to tell this on the slide, but if you're following along in your Bible, uh, verses 7 through 11 uh, are a quote from the 95th Psalm. We've been doing a good job reading together, uh, so let's do that now. And the verses are marked, so you will be able to see this. Here we go. So as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We have come to sharing Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, again, a reference, a quote of Psalm 95, 7 through 11 We are presented with a warning to these believers who are being tempted away from Christ. It is a warning from the history of Israel. It is a warning from the history of their ancestors. Those verses, as it is clear in reading, refer to the time that Israel was wandering around the wilderness for 40 years after having been led out of Egyptian bondage by Moses. This is a time where the 95th Psalm tells us, and if you read about the history of it, you you will see that this is a time when the hearts of the people were always going astray. They tested and they tried God by how unfaithful they were. And Psalm 95, which is quoted here in Hebrews 3, acknowledges that God became angry with that generation. We don't like to think of that, but the Scripture tells us that they were It was his people. It wasn't the pagans. It was his people. They were so unfaithful to him that God became angry with them. And we know that many of them were not permitted to enter the promised land because of their unfaithfulness, because of their unbelief. Here's how it happened. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God uses Moses, used Moses to lead the people out of their slavery. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that he did it in very dramatic fashion. Some of the greatest stories of the Old Testament are found in the history of God delivering his people from Egyptian bondage. You know the stories, you know, Pharaoh's not going with the program and, and Moses has a, a staff and he, he throws it on the ground and becomes a snake, picks it up and becomes a staff again amazing stuff. 
the dramatic confrontations between Moses and Pharaoh, the plagues, the ten plagues that uh, happened to uh, weaken Pharaoh's resolve and to get him to finally let the people go. And of course, then he changes his mind and he chases after the children of Israel. They, they get across the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's army gets in there and then the sea closes in on them. And dramatic actions on God's part for his people, dramatic deliverance. And the stories from that time and even from their time in the wilderness can just go on and on and on as to how God provided for his people. But it did not take long after being delivered from 400 years of slavery, after witnessing all the miraculous things that God did to to deliver them, it did not take long for the children of Israel to grow discontented with Moses and to grow discontented with God. So much so, get this, that they actually openly talked about a desire to go back and be slaves in Egypt again. Wow. God delivers you from 400 years of slavery that you've been crying out to be delivered from. He shows himself strong on your behalf. And not very long later, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we just go be slaves again? Because this freedom stuff is hard. That's, That's what happened. They built a golden calf and worshipped it. They complained that God wasn't providing for them even though food fell from the heavens every night. Manna. There are no Bible scholars who seem to think manna was like awesome. But it was food. And it fell from the sky. And they were angry with God. They claimed that God wasn't coming through for them. Even though he led them with visible signs of his presence. Things like a pillar of cloud by day. And a pillar of fire by night. They knew how he had delivered them from Pharaoh, but they wouldn't enter the promised land and take it because they were afraid of the enemies they might face while entering the promised land. You know the story. Joshua and Caleb come back. We can do it. Yes, the giants are big, but we can do it. The rest of them, no, we can't do it. No, there's no way the God who delivered us from Pharaoh, brought us through the Red Sea, swallowed up the armies, and drops food from heaven. There's no way that he can help us conquer the giants that are in the promised land. And so for 40 years, they wandered the wilderness complaining against Moses, worse, complaining against God, turning away from God, rebelling against God, serving false gods. The rebellion was so severe that Psalms acknowledges God was angry with them. They were not permitted to enter the promised land because of their unbelief and what the scripture says is their rebellion against God. And the author of Hebrews uses this example 
He offers this warning through the history of Israel because the recipients of his letter, these early Jewish Christians, are facing the same temptation as those who wandered in the wilderness. And they're also facing the same potential consequences. Think about their position. They have been delivered from sin and death by God's strong and miraculous actions on their behalf in Christ. But now they are considering returning to the law and traditions of their fathers, just like their ancestors were ready to get up, give up the freedom from Egypt God had provided them and return to Egyptian bondage. They are failing to appreciate the salvation that Christ has provided for them and are allowing themselves to be drawn away from Christ. They're considering giving in and turning away from Jesus because being connected to him has brought some pressure and some discomfort and some difficulty to their lives, just like escaping Egyptian bondage had brought some pressures and some challenges to their ancestors. They're tempted to turn back. They're tempted to turn away from Christ, just like their ancestors wanted to turn back from the promised land and return to Egypt. And in Hebrews 3, and with the entire book of Hebrews, the author is imploring them not to do this, but to stay true to Christ, to hold on to Christ. Look at how the author of Hebrews implores them in uh, verses 3, uh, 12, if you have your Bible. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We saw earlier in Hebrews the danger of drifting away, and here the author implores them not to, to turn away. You know, drift can just happen. It just happens naturally. But now here, this is a more intentional thing. Don't turn away. How is it that people for whom God has done great things, like he did delivering the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, how is it that people who have understood and embraced what Christ has done for them, how is it that those of us who have come to understand that Jesus really did live a sinless life in perfect obedience to God, die a substitutionary death for us, and rose to life proving that he fully paid the penalty for our sins and we can have eternal life, how is it that such people can drift away and turn away from God? Our text gives us two reasons. The first one is found in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Here's how it happens to people. A time of testing comes. Trouble comes. And people's hearts fail them. They lose confidence. They lose hope. They lose courage. After deliverance from Egypt, perhaps the children of Israel expected that from that moment on, everything was going to like be really good. We're free. It's all, it's all going to be good. So when their food was manna, and when water was scarce, they forgot the previous provisions. They overlooked that manna may not have been their first choice, but it was a provision from God, and they became angry, turned away. 
After coming to believe on Jesus, these early Jewish Christians faced pressure from their families. They were often ostracized. Persecution was a real thing. Trouble came. And their hearts failed them. How about us? Many of us start out with Jesus. We come to faith. Everything seems great. We really do experience the feeling of life being new and us being new. But then, life just keeps going. The car still breaks down. The boss is still mean. Prayers we pray don't receive the answer we wanted. We realize we're still battling the flesh. We're not immune to temptation. People are still mean. Massive, massive numbers of people are still mean. Trouble comes and people lose heart. The culture turns against us. This is something that we as Christians in the United States face that people in other parts of the world have always faced. We've had a relatively friendly culture for much of our lives. But that's changing. Culture's turning against us. Suddenly believing what the Bible teaches about human sexuality comes with real and difficult consequences. Standing firm on the truth that Jesus is the only means of salvation gets you greeted with disdain in polite company. Trouble comes and people lose heart. Here's the next reason. It's found in verse 13. It says, encourage one another daily so long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So people drift and turn away from Christ because trouble comes and they lose heart. And they drift and turn away from Christ because sin is insidious. Sin is deceptive. And it deceives us. It usually starts out this way. We allow ourselves some small thing that we know we should not do or we should not think. But we convince ourselves it doesn't really matter that much. It's not that big a deal. And so we make an allowance. It doesn't take doing that very many times until you've got a habit on your hands. And once it becomes a habit, it's really easy to start thinking that it's not actually wrong. Or at least we try to convince ourselves of that. So some well-meaning brother or sister in Christ comes along and challenges us, and we're ready with our rationalizations. Everybody does it. Don't be legalistic. It's not that big a deal. Who are you to judge? Come on, man. I mean, it's not that, it's not that big a thing. But this sets us up for the next thing that comes along that's wrong. And that before we wouldn't have done... And it's worse than the first thing that we accommodated, but now we have conditioned ourselves to accommodate things that we should not accommodate. And so now we accommodate something that's just a little bit worse. 
because we've already rationalized the first thing, and now we rationalize this new thing. And now we're developing a pattern of shushing our conscience and making allowances for ourselves, and this allows us to tolerate more and worse things than what we did at the start. Sin deceived us. It's no big thing. I can do this this one time. I can do it the second. I can do it the third time. I can do it the fifth time. Sin deceived us. And now we are in real danger of our sin continuing unchecked. And if this process is not interrupted, we can easily end up on a path where our initial belief in Christ begins to fade, our hope in Christ dissipates, we lose our commitment to him, we drift away, or we even get to the place where we intentionally turn away. James 1, 14 and 15 speaks to this. When James wrote, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. People drift and turn away from God because sin deceives us. We think we can manage it. We think we can keep it in check. We think we can, uh, can control it. We can keep it on the leash. It'll be okay. But we can't. And so the writers of Hebrews warns us. Chapter 3 of Hebrews is a warning, an appeal to God's people. And if you look at verses 16 through 19, it makes the point that this is a warning to God's people, not to those outside. It's a warning to God's people. Those verses make the point that it was God's people who were prevented from entering the promised land because of their unbelief. And what the author seems rather clearly to be warning the recipients of his letter is that they faced the same consequences as their, original, their earlier ancestors if they turn away from Christ. They will not enter the rest that is promised to the people of God if they drift and turn away from Jesus. I have no doubt today that I'm speaking to people who are drifting from Christ. Not all of you, but some of us here today are drifting from Christ. I have no doubt that I'm speaking to people who are being tempted, who are at risk of actually making an intentional decision and turning away from Jesus. And I plead with you today to receive the appeal of Hebrews don't do it. Don't turn away. Re receive the appeal of Hebrews. If you are facing that temptation today, our text gives some guidance on how we can resist drifting from faith, from Christ, how we can resist turning away from Jesus, rebelling against Jesus. And here is the first guidance that it gives us. Remember the if Remember the if. Remember the stakes. Remember the consequences. Here is an inconvenient truth 
of evangelical Christianity in the United States. Probably all of you aren't going to agree with me on this, but I, I believe this very is very true. We have fallen prey to easy believism. We have fallen prey to easy believism. Repeat this prayer, and you are saved, no matter what happens from this point on. You can go out the door. You can never uh, do another thing for Christ. You can walk away from him and live just like you lived before you prayed the prayer. Say that prayer. Say the magic words, and you're good forever. Who wants Jesus to be captain of your ship? Raise your hand. All right. Forever. You're good. Sealed forever. Eternally secure. Jesus, captain of my ship. Thumbs up. We don't know the condition of anyone's heart when they repeat the sinner's prayer. We don't know the condition of anyone's heart when they say, yeah, I want Jesus to be captain of my ship. We don't know that. We do not know that. And yet thousands and millions of people have been told that they are eternally secure because they raised their hand and they repeated a prayer and then promptly walked out of the building and lived the rest of their lives entirely on their own terms. Here's what Hebrews says. Verse 6, we are his house if we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Here's what verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And so to avoid drifting, to resist turning away, we have to remember the if, the the if, the test of faith is whether it endures to the end. It is. You cannot like that. You can say, God, I wish it wasn't that way. But the scripture is quite clear. The test of faith is that it endures to the end. And as I shared last week, that does not mean that we earn our salvation by holding on to faith. We absolutely do not earn our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how it happens. But holding on to faith is the evidence of true saving faith. And so remember the if, remember the qualifier. Disavow yourself of the idea that one prayer one time that never resulted in any change at all was evidence of saving faith. And now you're just free. Go do, do, go do whatever you want. Turn away from Jesus. You're eternally secure. The New Testament has many appeals to believers of the necessity of persevering in faith. Because true faith that results in conversion, new birth, is faith that endures. Those same verses 6 and 14 tell us how we resist drift and turning away. Uh, They tell us two simple words. Hold on. 
Grab hold. Don't let go. Hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. No one ever promised us that our faith wouldn't be challenged. No one ever promised us that we'd never have questions or that uncertainty would never visit us. No one ever promised that confidence in the gospel would always just be there, always just be easy. The writer of Hebrews is acknowledging that that's not the case, which is why his advice is hold firmly to our confidence and hope. Hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Got to grab hold and not let go. Get a tight grip on your confidence. Like, you know, any of you who ski, you know how hard it is to hold on when that boat's pulling you up out of the water? It is hard. I've never done it and not wanted to just let go when the whole thing started. Oh, just let go. This is too hard. But you don't because you, you want to get up. So you hold on tight. You hold on tight. You won't let go. Sometimes you'll see people like, you know, just being drugged behind the, the boat, <laughs> slapping against the water because they held on. They would not let go. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be like the runner who sets their sights on the finish line and will not quit until the finish line is crossed. Even if we're walking by that point, even if we're crawling by that point, we're not quitting until the line is crossed. That's what true faith does. You see, faith is not a passive thing. Faith isn't an easy thing. True lasting faith is intentional. Lasting faith takes effort. Faith that endures to the end requires actively holding on to faith because the world, the devil, and our own flesh, they all are conspiring to get us to drift and to get us to turn away. And so you have to take hold of your conviction. You have to take hold of your confidence in Christ. You have to take hold of the gospel and refuse to let go. Refuse to let go. Someone once described it this way. Put everything on Jesus and then just let it ride. Don't ever revisit that again. Just, it's all on Jesus. It's all on Jesus. I've made my decision. It is all I'm all in with Jesus, and I'm not turning away from that. Hold on to him and don't let go. And here's the third counsel our text gives for resisting drift and turning away from Christ. Verse 13 says, encourage one another daily. We're to encourage each other. We have been put together in the house that God is building there are very good reasons why God doesn't want us traveling through life alone, why he doesn't want us trying to walk out our faith alone. There are good reasons why he's placed us in his body with other believers, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like the reasons are so good. There are good reasons why he's done it. 
And here's one of them. We're to encourage one another to hold on when we are tempted to drift and turn away. We're to play that role in each other's lives. We, we, we need each other. When my grip is getting weak, you come along and encourage me. Hold on, Brian. Tighten your grip up again. Hold on. When your grip is loosening, I'm to come along and encourage you to hold on. We will drift if we're not intentional about resisting drift. We face temptation to turn away, to walk away, or to help each other, cheer each other on, encourage one another. Is your faith feeling weak? Hold on, brother. Hold on, sister. Let me pray with you. Let me pray right now that God would strengthen your faith. You can make it. Keep going. Keep pressing forward. Hold on tight. I understand how you feel. I've been there too, but hold on tight. We can do it together. And that's the role that we are to play in each other's lives. We are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This week on Tuesday at around 11.15 p.m., our beloved Jace Blanton passed from this life into the next life when this 12-year-old boy was welcomed into the presence of Jesus Christ. I ask the family's permission to talk about Jace today because this precious young man was a shining example of someone who held firmly to his original conviction until the very end. Jason and Alicia have shared with me that Jace did not spend a lot of time, in fact, I think they said he didn't spend any time, asking why me. His faith wasn't shaken because of the circumstances of his life. In spite of everything that he had to go through, the surgeries and the treatments, the loss of the physical ability to do things he loved to do, this young man held firmly to Jesus. Evening devotions were a daily routine for Jace. And Jason and Alicia shared with me how during some of his harder days, especially in the last few weeks, that they would think that perhaps he would not be feeling up to doing his devotions. And so each night they would give him the option and they would expect that he would want to skip. And so Alicia shared that every time she would ask, devotions or no, for tonight, the answer always came back, devotions. I understand that in Jason's nearly four years of battling cancer, there were only two occasions where he prayed for himself during family prayers. Because, according to the testimony of his family, his prayers were always focused on two things. One, 
the things he was thankful for. And asking God to help others who needed help. He did not drift. Difficulty and trouble did not cause him to lose heart and turn away. He held on to Jesus tightly. Today from 4 to 7, the family is going to be receiving visitors here in the sanctuary. And tomorrow at 1 p.m., we're going to celebrate this young man's special life. I wanted to share this with you. Uh, Joe, if you could bring that uh, up to me. Thank you. On one of Jace's trips to Children's Hospital, a receptionist who was a believer uh, gave Jace this uh, prayer box that her church made and and gave to people. And uh, so this is something that he uh, kept with him then from that point on. And as he or family members would come across Bible verses that spoke to Jace and were an encouragement to Jace. They would be written down here either by him or other family members and and they would be placed in uh, the prayer box and then they would pull those out and read through them and receive the encouragement uh, of the scriptures. A day or two after Jace passed, the daily Bible verse on Alicia's Bible app was James 1.12. And after she read it, she thought that she remembered that that was one of the verses that was in Jason's prayer box that he had placed there. And so she went to the box and checked, and, and there it was. And in this prayer box, he had written on one of the little, or maybe it had been written for him, I'm not sure on that part, but it had been written, James 1.12. Here's what James 1.12 says. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to all who love him. Jace lived that verse. Jace persevered under trial. He stood the test. He held on to Jesus. And today he is with Christ. His faith has become sight. He has received what is promised to all who love Jesus. Friends, let Jesus' life be an inspiration to all of us to not allow trouble and trial and difficulty to cause us to lose heart and to turn away. But instead, let's follow the example of this young man and let's hold tightly to Jesus. Let's hold firmly to our confidence and our hope Let's hold firmly to our original conviction to the very end, no matter the troubles and the pressures that come to us. It will be worth it to hold on tight. It really will. It's going to be worth it when we finally see Jesus.
As I was preparing, I was reminded of this old song. We, I didn't have time to ask the team to play it, so I'll just share the lyrics with you. The old song said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So let us run this race till we see Christ. Hold on tight, church. Hold on tight to Jesus. Let's stand.